Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and make a statement that should be obvious to everybody. Texts, as in manuscripts, books, writing, texts, require interpretation. That seems obvious, right? I mean, after all, we we learn reading comprehension in school because we have to work at rightly interpreting texts. We read a difficult passage of scripture and we get frustrated because the interpretation is not coming easily. We recognize a problem when two different people come to very different interpretations about a particular biblical text. Somebody's interpretation must be wrong. Texts require interpretation. This is obvious. What might not be so obvious is that events also require interpretation. When I was in high school, I received my daily dose of comic relief from one particular teacher who had a rather special reaction to the noise that took place in the hall. It didn't matter whether it was a fight that had broken out or two students yelling at each other or just a higher than acceptable volume by a group of students. The teacher would inevitably stick his head out of his classroom door and shout, what's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this? I used to laugh every time I heard that teacher shout out that question. I used to think to myself, who talks like that? However, looking back, it was a rather appropriate question that he was asking. The teacher heard commotion outside his classroom. He may have had an idea of what was going on, but he didn't want to jump to the wrong conclusion, a.k.a. make the wrong interpretation. Therefore, he needed someone to speak up and explain what was going on so that he could rightly understand the situation and respond appropriately. You know, a few weeks back was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so as I do every year, I reflected on that day, and my memories were just as vivid this year as they were 20 years ago when all of it happened. I remember I was woken up on that day by my brother-in-law after the first plane hit. I stood staring at the television in disbelief, and my mind asked the same question that everyone else's did at that moment, what happened? Of course, terrorism popped up as a possibility, but at that time, before we knew any better, so did accident and perhaps some other ideas. No one yet knew what was going on. The news reporters were laying out their suggestions, but what we had was an event without an interpretation. Then the second plane struck. Okay, that's no coincidence. That's no accident. The Pentagon, United Airlines Flight 93, and more and more details began to come out, and now the event had an interpretation. We knew what had taken place as we were able to finally interpret it and interpret it rightly. Events require interpretation. Now, I want you to imagine with me, you're a first century Jewish person living in Rome. You've spent considerable time, energy, and resources to travel to Jerusalem for the culmination of the Feast of Weeks. 
you've got your, your whole day planned out. And as you make your way toward the temple to participate in the events of the day, you hear what sounds like the blowing of a violent wind. You see what can only be described as tongues of fire descending from heaven. Crowds are now beginning to gather around to see what's going on. And so, of course, you move closer too to see what on earth is happening. In the middle of all of this, there's a group of people and they're shouting things about God. But even though these are Galileans and you're from Rome, you hear them clearly in your own language and your own dialect. In fact, you come to realize that the person next to you who's from Egypt also claims to hear them in his own language and dialect. You turn towards someone else who appears to be from the Isle of Crete, and they are claiming the exact same thing. What's the meaning of all of this? What's going on? How do we interpret this event that's unfolding before us? And so it's here that we pick up our study. So please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. And today we're going to be in verse 14, picking up exactly where we left off on these particular events of Pentecost. So Acts 2, starting in verse 14. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Events require interpretation, and this one was no exception. All the people were amazed at what was taking place, but they didn't understand it until Peter explained what was going on. And what he explained was no small thing. I cannot begin to tell you how many Christians have asked me over this past year and a half to two years now, are we living in the end times? Certainly there are reasons for this sudden shift in everyone's thinking that raises this question. After all, we're used to geographically contained problems that we see on the news. But all of a sudden, we're dealing with a global issue, a pandemic that's affected all people across the entire world. For many, if not most people in our nation, this is the most difficult season that they have ever lived through. And when I say that, I include even those who've lived 70, 80, 90 or more years on the earth. There are sweeping changes in our culture that have changed the way that the majority of people view truth, view morality, and several other important things. People are now polarized, not just even over big issues, but small issues as well, perhaps more so than ever before in our nation. So what we have are several events that we find ourselves desperate to interpret. What's the meaning of this? 
From our biblical worldview, we understand that the end will come, right? That's something we see in the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus spoke about it. The last book of the Bible is about the end, right? So from our biblical worldview, we understand the end will come. We understand that the world will get worse before the end. We understand that the the end will be characterized by sweeping changes, division between people, and a host of other crazy things that none of us would choose to live through if we had a choice. Yet in our desperation to make sense of what's been happening, to interpret the events we've experienced, we ask the question, are we living in the end times? So here's my answer. I know you're all hoping I'll give it, so I'll give it to you. You may regret it once I say it, but here's my answer. No, but yes. No, but yes. Wouldn't I make a great politician? No, but yes. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. No, I, I don't believe that we've entered that tribulation period that the Bible talks about. I don't believe that Jesus will return in the next seven years, although I hope he does. I say this because according to my interpretation of the relevant biblical texts, There are more things that need to take place before those events unfold. I'm not moved even by recent events to believe that we're living in the end times. Because if we study history, we plainly see that far worse times, times that more closely resemble the end, have taken place throughout history at different points and in different places. And so while these certainly are difficult times, perhaps even the most difficult of our generation, Far worse times have come and gone, and yet we remain. However, my answer to the question, are we living in the end times, was no, but yes. So what do I mean by yes? And I think our text helps us understand this today. As Peter stood before the people of Jerusalem to explain the the events that were taking place right there in their midst, this is what he said. So again, Acts 2, starting in verse 15. He said, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so by quoting Joel, Peter was making a rather bold statement. We have, in fact, entered the last days. In fact, we can see rather clearly that several of the elements of Joel's prophecy from the Old Testament were taking place right there in Jerusalem at this time that we're reading about today. God's Spirit had been poured out, just as Joel predicted. The Spirit filled the believers in the sight of all who were there. Joel prophesied that the sons and daughters of Israel would prophesy. And here we have seen that these Christ followers who were all Jewish at the time, sons and daughters of of the Israelites when Joel prophesied, these people, filled with the Holy Spirit, were proclaiming the wonders of God. They were prophesying as led by the Spirit. And as Luke recounts these events in the book of Acts, 
We don't necessarily see any reference here to visions and dreams. However, as we continue to read Acts, we will see such events, again, attesting that we have entered the last days. This is Peter's message, that these days that Joel has spoken about, they're here. They've begun. This is what, we're, this is what you're seeing. However, as we look at Joel's prophecy, there are things that have not happened yet. So we have to be honest about this, too, and look at this and see why. See, they didn't take place uh, at the time that we're reading about some of these things or throughout the book of Acts. There's things he mentions that we don't see. And even in the 2,000 years between them and us, some of these things have not yet taken place. So what are some of these things? So in our text today, Acts chapter 2, let's look at verses 19 and 20. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. I get the sense that more will take place in the heavens than we see demonstrated at Pentecost. The sun has not been turned to darkness, nor the moon to blood in our text today or any time throughout history up until now. And the great and glorious day of the Lord is not yet come as the world continues to tick along so far in the way it always has. So what are we to make of this? Are we living in the end times? Again, the answer seems to be no, but yes. If we think about the end times as a spectrum, as a, a range of time, a period of time with a beginning and an end, we are not at the very end. But the period of time has certainly begun. To put it another way, the last days began with Christ's death and resurrection, and the last days will end with the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. And so we find ourselves somewhere on the timeline between these two points. In light of that, I want to draw our attention to some important facts that our study of Acts has thus far revealed as we consider our placement here on the timeline within these last days. So let's take a look at some important points that we've covered thus far and how they play into what we're reading about today. So we've already seen that between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus' primary focus was in teaching his followers further about the kingdom of God. We saw this in Acts 1-3. It said, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Even before his death, Jesus' primary message was the kingdom of God. In fact, his miracles demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God. His words and works foreshadowed the kingdom of God. Over and over again, the Gospels echo his words that the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection made it possible for people to be rescued from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Since the fall in the garden, since the fall, all people have been subjects of the kingdom of this world a kingdom that stands diametrically opposed to God and his kingdom. Yet the Bible's full of promises that one day, at the end of time, God will bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. We see imagery like this, that all will be made new, that sin will be done away with, that God himself will be present with his people in a way that no one has ever seen before, 
that none will stand opposed to God and his kingdom, that all will be well. However, for people to be able to defect from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, something had to happen. People had to be redeemed. Their sin and their rebellion against God had to be paid for. And so Jesus died on the cross to atone for that sin, to atone for that rebellion, so that men and women could become citizens of the kingdom of God. And so what marks this season, the last days, the period of time that began here in Acts 2 and will continue until Jesus comes back? The citizens of the kingdom of God serve as ambassadors in the world so that more and more people can become citizens of the kingdom of God. So Jesus did the work that needed to be done so that there can be a kingdom of God, so that people can be rescued into the kingdom of God. And what marks these last days is the role of the church, the role of God's people, as he works in and through them to rescue others out of the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. And we see this in Acts as well. We looked at it when we saw Acts 1.8. This was Jesus' instructions to his first disciples. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, God will empower them through his Spirit, and they will spread the word of the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what we read about today. This is exactly what took place in Acts chapter 2. God sent his spirit to empower his people to spread the word about the kingdom of God. And not only was this descriptive of that beginning of the last days, but this is also the way it is for all of God's followers throughout this period of the last days. This is the way it is for you and for me as well. If we are disciples of Jesus, we have received the Holy Spirit, 100% across the board. In fact, if you do not have the Spirit, you are not of Christ. If you have the Spirit, you are of Christ. If you have committed yourself to Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you don't have to think about it. You have received the Holy Spirit. If we have received the Holy Spirit, then we are already empowered by God to spread the word about the kingdom of God. He has already given us his empowerment to do this, to be his ambassadors, to spread the word about the kingdom. There's another facet of our text today that we ought not to miss. And this comes from verses 20 and 21. It says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this period of time that Joel and Peter refer to as the last days will not last forever. This window of time for people to give up their citizenship in the kingdom of this world and to accept their invitation to become citizens of the kingdom of God, this time will close. In fact, many, even in New Testament times, expected the end to come much quicker. The Apostle Paul had to write to the church at Thessalonica to explain the way things will play out because they, they misunderstood it. The Apostle Peter addressed this issue in his second letter, explaining why God had not yet sent Jesus back. We see this in 2 Peter 3.9. 
but the fact remains that God will not tarry forever. And I know I reference this passage often, but, it often, but if, if, if saying it often helps it to stick permanently in your mind, then good. But the truth of these things is clearly demonstrated in John three sixteen through 18. Let me read it for you briefly. John three sixteen through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. God sent Jesus because he loved the world, and he wanted to redeem the world. He wanted all people to be citizens of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus didn't come the first time to bring judgment. That was not the great and glorious day of the Lord. He didn't come to condemn. It said he came to lay down his own life to redeem people. And so those who believe are saved from the just penalty of their sins. They're saved from the condemnation that they had earned. And they're saved from the kingdom of this world, which will pass away. However, those who do not believe, they're not condemned because they reject Jesus. They were condemned already. And by rejecting Jesus, they stay that way. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a concert. I've been to concerts. Jenny and I like concerts. We go to Christian concerts when we get a chance. I once had really, a really unfortunate incident happen, though. I once bought tickets for Jenny and me to go to a concert, but the concert was rescheduled. I don't even remember the reason. This was prior to COVID. I never marked the new date on my calendar. And, of course, the worst thing happened. I forgot all about the rescheduled date for the concert. In fact, it wasn't until sometime after the concert that I found the tickets. And even though I had the ticket, I paid for it, I had it in my hand, and I could have gone to the concert, I didn't do what needed to be done to attend, and so I missed the show, even though I had the ticket. Well, think of it this way. God has given every man and woman the ticket. Jesus made provision in his death on the cross for everyone to attend. However, if they don't avail themselves of it before the end, they will miss it. Yet the beautiful promise is this, from Acts 2.21, again quoting Joel, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's desire. This is God's will. This is why Jesus was sent. And God will make good on his promise for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. They will be saved. In fact, the passage of Scripture often, at least I often quote when somebody asks me, what must I do to be saved? I give them Romans 10.9. And I just want to read to you 10.9 through 13 because it takes this concept, this Old Testament prophecy, this promise of God, and it demonstrates that it ultimately points to Jesus. Here, I want you to see this, Romans 10, 9 through 13. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does it mean to declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord? It means that what comes out of your mouth is a profession of your faith that he is your Lord and you are calling upon him. You have committed yourself to him and everybody who does that will be saved. And so friends, we find ourselves in one of two camps, whether or not we've thought of it in these terms. And our passage today has implications for us regardless of which camp we're in. If we've not yet committed our lives to Jesus, if we've not yet called upon his name, if we've not yet surrendered to him as Lord or received his gift of salvation, we must not put this off. You know, it's easy to think that we've been in the last days now for 2,000 years, so surely there's plenty more time to get serious with God. However, the truth of the matter is that we're not promised even another minute on this earth. And I think we all learned that lesson well over the past year and a half. Life is fleeting. So if you recognize the truth of the gospel, but you've not yet responded to it, don't wait any longer. Take care of this today. And if you're not sure whether or not this is true, well, I think you owe it to yourself to investigate the matter well and honestly and sooner rather than later. And even if you're convinced this isn't true, I would urge you that with how much is at stake, take another look. Take an honest look. One way or another, that window will close. And God has done all that he can to provide salvation. If we don't have it, that's on us. If we're in the other camp, perhaps, as the one who has committed their life to the Lord, this passage has some important implications for us as well. Again, God has demonstrated that he keeps his promises. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost just as he had promised. Christians then and now have been empowered to serve as Christ's witnesses, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And that's something we need to take seriously. You know, I've worked many jobs in my life prior to uh, becoming your pastor. Uh, I've worked for all kinds of bosses, in fact. I've worked for bosses that were just plain horrible. You could ask Jenny about these stories that I have told her over the years. I've had horrible bosses. In fact, the only reason that I worked hard and did well at my job in those situations was because I had a good work ethic. I couldn't bring myself to not do a good job. I certainly wasn't working hard and well to please my bosses. They didn't deserve my respect. However, I've also had other bosses as well, good bosses, those who led by example, those who were kind, those who inspired others to be the best version of themselves. And I'll tell you the truth, I'd found myself in those situations working very hard, giving my very best to honor those bosses who stood there and did well in their roles. So when we think about who the king of the kingdom of God is, when we think about who our boss is, shouldn't we deeply desire to give our all, to give our best? If God has appointed us as his ambassadors, and if he has empowered us for this task, we must do our best for him. And when you couple that with the fact that those who are apart from him are on a sinking ship and desperately need salvation, aren't we moved to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to them? Friends, if we are Christ followers, we must take seriously our commission for God's glory, for King Jesus, for the salvation of the lost, 
So help us, God. Thank you.